Hello. Hello. Come in. Right. This, um, this is weird. Hello. Welcome to Arrest All Minics. This is a Creative Innovation Podcast. My name is Ben Tallon. The reason I started like that, I feel like I'm coming in from some kind of pirate radio station. I'm in my father-in-law's tool shed in Wiltshire because that's where we are this week. The up and downside to the fact that I can work from anywhere within reason is that I end up working from anywhere within reason. Um, <laughs> how are you all doing? Um, I just want to let you in on a little part of my setup as we speak. I am surrounded by knackered paintbrushes and ink pens and ink pots and brushes, but also Ron Seal, rusty Ron Seal tins and adhesives and hard hats and weird bits of tools and saws and stuff that I don't, you know, as an artist, I don't have a clue about DIY. Not saying that no artists know about DIY, but I don't. So that's where you find me. I hope you're doing well. I hope you're good. So yeah, like I said, you find me anywhere as usual. Um, So it's cloudy outside. It's a weird day. It's in the middle of not in the middle of lockdown, but we are in lockdown and it's strange and it's weird and I want to know how you're feeling, so let me know because we're going to get deep today, we're going to get deep. It's a two-part special episode called What's the Effing Point? Um, I will get into the reasons why and I will tell you all about wonderful guests coming up, Craig Oldham and Dewinda Bansal, shortly. But first, I want to get the business out of the way and thank the wonderful and vital supporters of the show, illustrationx.com sponsor of the show since day one um they're fantastic they represent a whole host of global illustrators artists and live artists and fashion illustrators and they've got a whole bunch of people animators included so go and check out their fantastic portfolios over at illustrationx.com and uh, getting behind the show from the ground up so really appreciate that cheers to those guys the aoi.com the association of illustrators uh, again, doing great work for the illustration industry. Go and have a look at their portfolios, the business support for all you up-and-coming illustrators, established illustrators. They have information on all the nitty-gritty stuff that we want to avoid, from pricing to insurance to legal contracts to your rights, um, promotional tips. They're very, very, very cool, and they're wonderful, and they support this podcast and our industry. So go and check them out, theaoi.com. So cheers for listening and bearing with. Go and support those guys because they support this podcast. So I hope you well. It's kind of a bizarre time. There's ups, there's downs. The reason I wanted to tackle this issue, so let me describe the issue, uh, what I've been talking about and the reason I wanted to sh- describe this podcast is call it What's the Effing Point? So that's the sentiment, right? There's a lot of, as I describe, using a bad analogy in this podcast, B-movie monsters swanning, swaggering over that horizon, roaring fire in our faces and stomping on our villages and our kids. <laughs> but that's what it feels like, right? Joking aside, we've got crazy presidents, we've got climate crisis, we've got COVID-19, we've got racial injustice and inequality... There's a lot of demons in the world at the minute, and I can forgive anyone for feeling pretty shit and down on their luck. And what I've found, personally, is this. I will sit down, I will get my tools out, I will get my pot of coffee in the morning, I will walk the dog, I will feel good. I will come into work, I will sit down, 
and I will glimpse something on Twitter or the news if I ever watch it and I try not to for this reason and it kind of quashes my soul a little bit something will power drive me and it will knock the wind out of my sails and it leaves me feeling exactly to the title of this episode what's the effing point okay I think what is the point of writing this fiction story that I'm starting on today what is the point in this illustration that I'm creating for that magazine what is the point of this exhibition design you know I could go on it, it depends it's what you're doing what are you doing and what is the effing point so that's the kind of the the narrative for this show because I've seen so much of that across Twitter across conversations I've had with people over the phone in person socially distancing of course and I think the deal is we are sensitive creatures and when I say we I'm talking about people who as a fundamental part of their character are artistically inclined and for that reason have found their way into the creative industry and on some level even if they don't always find the time to do it they want to make the world a better place and through their artistic talents through their podcasts through their filmmaking skills through their sound and recording skills through their observational part of their personality whatever it might be they want to help they are nice people they are fundamentally sensitive sound people who in their day-to-day -day, want to do the right thing i think that's what i've gathered in 12 years of working in this industry but the flip side of that is we get down very easy and when things like this are going on in the world speaking personally it hits me for six more than anything else instead of the environment it's the big one for me and it leaves me feeling quite an empty shell and whether it's a commercial project or whether it's a, a personal body of work it does kind of leave me in a state of mind where I actually don't want to pick up the tool I'm about to use because I feel that the world is in such a state of monumental fuckery that it's not going to make a difference it's not going to help it's not going to help me you know we're all going to be dead soon all of that bleak stuff we're not I would hope but that's the way it feels right so i hope you guys can get on board with me with this one come at me at arrest on the mix on the social i want to hear from you don't leave me hanging i always say that and next thing no one gets back so come on give it some let's have a conversation um but i've seen it a lot i'm not going to name names people i'm friends with people i have digital and real life relationships with down on their luck feeling miserable you know i had a bad day today not going to do that project what's the point it's it's very very easy to do so the reason i wanted to make this podcast the reason i want to make any of these podcasts is to improve the state of mind is to is to try and flip that on its head and i like to think that the two guests i've got lined up for you guys are going to do exactly that so craig Oldham, manchester based designer originally from barnsley he's a force of nature just like my other guest in part two who will be coming up next week dewinda bansal from wolverhampton dewinda was the first generation of people from South Asia born in the United Kingdom. So that's going to be an interesting story in its own right. She moved to Wolverhampton in, I believe, the 60s with parents from India, an Indian Kenyan home. Not going to go deep into that, that's for part two. But she's got a wonderful story and the way that Dwinder addresses her South Asian heritage, the way she channels it into these thought-provoking, subtle and extremely powerful projects is awe-inspiring. So that's coming up next week. But Craig Oldham, I'm hoping Craig, well I know for a fact because I've recorded the damn episode, but Craig is going to bring some really, really energising words and he's going to bring some food for thought and he's going to tell us exactly why we should get past the lulls wherever possible and use the passion, use the hurt 
to get beyond it and to use these skills to you know to uh, to attack the issues to run with our passions to explore deep into whatever weirdness it is we're interested in we're going to get right into it we're going to get into his project about the miners strike that his dad was arrested in that ripped his hometown of Barnsley to shreds that he had to witness firsthand his mum was right there alongside his dad in the strikes it's a famous photograph which i will share on the channels of his dad being arrested being attacked by police officers and in a brilliant talk for it's nice that's nicer tuesdays which you can find on youtube by the way and you really should craig explains how his dad was more frightened of his granddad than he ever was the coppers beating the shit out of him and how he didn't want to damage the shoes because they were his granddad's shoes and i find that absolutely hilarious but what craig's very very good at just like dewinder is using subtlety and personal passion and the power of the image and typography and, and graphic design um, with things that mean something to him and her to make a difference and I think that's the core of this project. What I wanted to do was attack the notion that we feel, or I feel at least, let me know if you feel like it too, that in these times we have to wear the weight of the world around our neck and deal with climate change personally and deal with COVID-19 personally and hoist up the entire black lives matter campaign on our own back in some way in some shape in some form and that's impossible it was ken garland a personal hero of mine a graphic activist that said to me when i had the pleasure of interviewing him a few years ago which you can check that out in the archive on the podcast um he said it's a heavy weight to bear around our neck and none of us can do that and nor should we try and he pointed to the fact that we should choose wisely we should choose our battles and we should apply all of our energies and our expertise and our knowledge and do something that means something to us and focus on a small part some small part of society some real cause that you give a shit about and you can really make a difference because it doesn't stay within that sphere rarely does it ever stay within that sphere if it's done with heart if it's done with passion it will spill way beyond that and it will pick people up and it will give them ideas and it will encourage them to go out there and fight for what they believe in and do good work it's why I do this podcast. The reason I started this podcast was because I really care and really passionate about creativity and I care about its role in life, in society. And I think that if I can just change the life of one person by making them get off their ass and do something that means something to them, that gives them a purpose, that inspires one other person, that does something good for a good cause, then I've won. I've done what I set out to do in this industry when I you know, left university with the bit between my teeth. And there are going to be days when I'm down on my ass, and there always are. And it's hard, it's so hard to get back up. But get up I do, because what else is there? Lying on my bed? I'm not going to change the world from there. The cliche goes, you're not going to change the world from your sofa. Um, and there are ways. I think the difference is this. We have to do it in a way that is personal to us, that, that, that chimes with our personality and our character. So if you are tender, if you are prone to depression and you are an introvert, that's fine. I think you have to dig deep and you have to look inside for what you care about, what small difference that you can make. You know, What is your thing? Maybe it's just writing one line. Maybe it's making a word of typography in a colour that you like about a topic that you're interested in. And share it with the world because we don't know what the ripple effect is. We can never know. We shouldn't seek to understand what that is. And we're going to get deep into that today with Craig Oldham. So I hope it inspires. So the best example I've got recently, and I've been uh, promising this, is if anybody's been watching my Instagram TV videos of late, I've got a new book project coming up. And it's taken me a little while to get going, and here's why. It isn't a charity project. It isn't a big all singing dancing about the environment, about how we can save the environment or how we can plant more trees or anything like that. And when I'm feeling down, when I'm feeling like the world is a shit place and I don't want to be in it, which happens, 
I feel like I need to go out there and bang the drum on such a large level, you know, really change something with one image. So you put it out there and you do that and you get angry and it gets two retweaks or it gets nothing, it gets a like, it, gets, it falls into digital nothingness, into the black hole. Then you feel worse and that's what happens. So I set out writing these stories and when I write, I write, you know, from the heart, instinctively, I get on the keyboard and I punch away and I let it all rip. Much the same style as my, my illustration, it's very raw. And I've been writing for a long time now, I've been writing a lot of short stories, a lot of fiction, a lot of faction, which I class as a, you know, the blend of my own experiences put in a fictional context. And for anyone that follows my channels, I've been doing a project um, called British Subculture Artifacts. And this was what a friend came up with off the back of a love, a shared, not love, but a shared interest in the things you find in the street. I'm talking about iconic British artifacts, anything from a knackered hubcap to a cigarette butt to a um, beer can to a mattress by the side of a skip. These are, you know, these are not things to celebrate. These are kind of horrible, down and dirty, but they have a lot of character about them. They bring character that's unique to our streets. And I've always loved exploring that idea in my writing, much like in my illustration. I try to draw things that are close to home. You know, I try and get that raw aesthetic that is kind of a part of my personality, having grown up in a, in a working class mill town called Keighley. Um so off the back of that, this book's kind of evolved off that artwork of all those British subculture artefacts. And the book is called Your Mum. <laughs> Very appropriate. Anyone who's grown up in this country will know that that's the kind of go-to schoolboy insult. Oh, your Mum. It's, you know, it kind of just diffuses and, and then just wins everything. It's a win-all insult. And it's ridiculous and it's childish, but I find it funny. And it's a very personal thing. So the book is called Your Mum and Other Stories from the Back Streets of Britain. So it's a collection of these short stories that I've been experimenting with, having fun, really enjoying. But what would happen is I would get three quarters into a story and I would be on a really creative, productive streak and bang, down my mood goes. I see a headline about, you know, about we've got six years because of climate change before tipping points happen and all this stuff. And I stop because it doesn't feel monumental. It doesn't feel important enough when I see people out there doing more direct things. But what Craig Oldham reminded me of with his project um, In Loving Memory of Work, which was the title of his book about the miners' strike in 1984 and 5, please do go and uh, do your research because it's a, it's a really, really fucked up, um, rabid story. But, you know, some real heroism going on among the people who struck for a year to, to you know, to save their jobs, to, to support their families, which Craig will detail better than I ever could. Um what he reminded me of and what Dwinda Bansal reminded me of with her projects such as Asian Women in Cars and Making of a South Asian Wedding was that these things have to be personal. They have to come from us. They have to come from our unique view on the world. So when I saw this book starting to come together, I realised I had this um, very rugged series of illustrations, 21 illustrations, 21 short stories. It's going to be a little limited edition book, 200 copies. It's going to be uh, an indie publication. I want to try my hand at that route because my first book, Champagne and Wax Crayons, was traditionally published with Lid Publishing in London and it had its ups and downs. They were fantastic in some respects. In other respects, I didn't think they were the best suited to the creative industry, but that was kind of on you know my lack of research as of a new author. I've only got myself to blame for that. And we all came out of it with something good, but for this time I want to do an indie publication. I wanted to try my hand at producing my own book, ebook, audiobook, 
and it's coming out so like i say it's a mix of illustration and writing but i felt very very down on the project every time i wrote i questioned myself and craig is going to tell us about why he felt the same way about his own projects and for anyone who's seen craig oldham talk you'll realize he's you know he's got a thick barnley accent he comes across as a very confident passionate character which he absolutely is but what was interesting to me was that craig felt the same way as the rest of us in terms of he felt completely sensitive he felt is anyone ever going to look at this? He talks about how late at night he sat down and thought, what am I doing designing these books, you know, on the minor strike on They Live, um, a cult B-movie, sci-fi B-movie by John Carpenter from uh, from the 80s with Rowdy Roddy Piper from what was then called WWF Wrestling. And it's amazing because the talks that Craig has done, and I really think you should go and watch them for a bit of back, background on this, um, on the Nicer Tuesdays series of talks, that it's nice that did. Um, he talks about how these things inspire generations. So They Live was such a cult film that it inspired artists like Shepard Fairey, who went on to do the hope, iconic hope post of Barack Obama, inspired an entire generation of street artists with the whole um, subliminal command and the control of Reaganism and all these political undertones within this film. And he talks about how you can either watch that film simply as a cheesy B-movie sci-fi film or you can watch it for all the layers and the political commentary and the racial inequality aspects to the film. And I find that truly fascinating. And it's Craig's love of film, his geekery of film, that took him to that place. And I think that's incredible because all he's really doing is doing what you do in art college, in design college, is you lead with the passions, uh, the things you care about, the things that get you out of bed in the morning, the things you go home in the evening and watch on Netflix, on TV, on the things you read about. And that's what it comes down to, surely. It's about exploration and wonder and magic and working with what you know, what makes you feel alive, that makes gives you goose pimples. And I think it doesn't have to be anything beyond that. If you don't feel like you can save the world with a poster or whatever it might be, then why don't you go and explore that niche? Go for a walk around that field, which is what I've been doing this week. For anyone who's following my Instagram channel, you'll see the series of photographs of found objects. I've been photographing bags of dog shit and coca-cola cans that have faded so you can only just see the logo and this is weird and everyone i grew up with will go you're a weirdo you know why do you do this stuff and i do it because i care and because i'm interested about it and on some level it always connects with somebody and craig oldham and dewinder bansal are two of the best examples that i've found of this in a long long time and i think they represent pure examples of creativity of the power in subtlety and in passion so i don't want to loop and, and repeat what i'm saying but for that reason i got my head down and the book um the book is coming together the book is almost designed i'm working with my wife laura talon at the moment on that she also goes on the paper hawk so go and check out her artwork um because she's awesome she's my wife <laughs> and you can't stop me from plugging that on my own show sorry gotta be done um, but I'm very passionate about this project, so do have a look on the Instagram. I, I want your feedback. I'm putting the front cover out there, getting people on board, getting feedback at the minute. So if you want to come and give us your thoughts, please do. I'd love to hear what you think of them. I will send you them privately. Please get involved. But the, the reason I'm telling you all this and the reason I'm shamelessly plugging my book on my show is that it's a passion project. I'm going to be doing another show in a couple of episodes of time all about, you know, kind of 2025 of my own favourite personal passion projects i don't mean projects i've created i mean the ones that are out there people like mr bingo who've built a career based on what they want to do and it's ended up being really really vital important unique work that sets an example and inspires whole new generations of creatives so let's get into the topic i could go on all day thank you again to the supporters of the show the association of illustrators the aoi.com and illustrationx.com fantastic illustration agency um 
the book is up there on my channels do check it out your mum and other stories from the back streets of britain i'm very proud and happy of the project i'm going to be keeping you guys posted as we move along um the book's going to be out in early october that is the plan i'm going to be doing a big campaign coming soon so keep your eyes peeled there's going to be giveaways of original drawings from the book um for I'm not going to give it away just yet, but there are going to be giveaways that are very easy to access. So come with me on the journey. I want to hear from you. But more importantly, guys, I want to hear how you're feeling at this time. I want to hear if you've been feeling down, if you're happy to share it. I want to hear, hear how you've dealt with it. What are the projects you've been working on? What are the projects that have inspired you and reminded you that, that there is an effing point and that, you know, all the great work out there, the people like uh, Emily Pankhurst, um, the John Lennons of the world, you know, the Martin Luther Kings, the people who probably could have laid in bed and sucked their thumbs and probably did some days, to be honest. You know, the best of us have, and there's nothing wrong with that. But they got up and they fought and they did it in their way, in a way that was truly personal to them, and it's the only way to go. So I hope this makes some sense. Craig Oldham says it better than I ever could. We're going to get into the interview. Um, we did this one over Zoom. The quality is actually pretty good, so I hope it's good for you guys craig is fantastic thanks to him for coming on the show i hope you enjoy it go and check out all his stuff over at the office of craig you can find him pretty easily on the social i will share the links in the social in on the social media uh, at rest on the mix on twitter and instagram and also in the show notes cheers for listening i want your feedback on this one get involved nice one guys enjoy the show background are you from barnsley i think you that sure i've seen that somewhere i am mate i am i'm a barnsley lad yeah just down the road from uh well, slammed in between the metropolises of Sheffield and Leeds, mate. I am Barnsley lad, Barnsley born and bred. Um, and I, I don't know, I was really, it felt, at the t I think everybody has that feeling where they grow up, they hate it, you know, they can't wait to get out, or I certainly felt like that and my sort of group of friends did. But I look back now and actually I was really fortunate that I had a great sort of cutting of my teeth in 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 my high school because we had a we had an ex-engineer who taught us what graphic design was when I was like 12 years old yeah. and he was amazing you know he, he came out of all all the pitch shutting and whatever else he was an engineer in the mining industry and the steelwork industry so he knew what design was and he worked with designers all his life and then suddenly he didn't have a job so he went into teaching and he taught maths and this thing called graphic products but he taught us all about typography and everything when he when he probably shouldn't have been and he kind of put me on the road, really. And then when I went to Barnsley College, which was, you know, a, a college pretty much on its arse and I was doing my A-levels, I had two great teachers there as well who were brilliant, a lad called Mark Wyatt and a lass called Mary Ledgard. And they were just amazingly supportive, amazingly encouraging and just put me on a, put, like I said, put me on the train tracks, really. And that, put, that pulled me out, out of the tarn, as we call it. <laughs> Was it, was it, just going back a little bit, was, was there any kind of, what's the family setup? I'm always interested in terms of them first seeds of creativity or artistic intent that, that come from, you know, because kids just do it in such a beautiful, innocent way that I'm always interested in what, what were the earliest kind of signs that that might have been something that interested you? Yeah, I mean, it's, when you, when you start to look at these things, you've got to realise that you're always doing it in hindsight. And I guess the things, you, you know, you can almost like find things that might not be of significance to you when you look back and you have that kind of gaze. But, um, you know, my family was all, not not what any single one of them would ever own up publicly to sort of being artistic or sort of having that kind of creative streak through them. But I, I always looked at them and saw it in them. You know, I always used to recognise little bits. But 
you know, on the on the sort of, you know, the job application form, as it were, you know, they were all in the pits. My um, great granddad, granddad, dad, all minors um, until they shut, and then my dad went into the NHS. My mum, uh, she went into she went into the NHS. She was a sister on intensive care, and there was a lot of that. So it was a real kind of working class upbringing that I had, and you know, my brother went into IT. Uh, sister didn't really do much. She was a bit of a rogue. Um, and I was this one who liked sort of writing stories and drawing pictures and stuff on the kitchen table kind of thing. Um, but I used to see my granddad all the time, like fixing stuff with, with nothing. He didn't have any tools or anything like that. He'd just sort of open this drawer of shite in his kitchen, pull out some tape and some string and a fucking key that we don't know what happened. He'd fix something else with it. And I used to see that and think, wow, how does he know how to do that? How does he, you know, where's that knowledge coming from? And I just used to think, oh, it must be his job. His job's taught him to do that. But the, as I got older and as I understood it more, I just thought, oh, well, actually, no, that's creativity. That's him problem solving in his life. And that was a great inspiration to me that you can kind of, you can have nothing, you know, you can have the bare minimum, ready, ready steady cook, whatever's in the carrier bag, and you can make something out of it. And that has really stuck with me. I mean, you know, I've, I've sort of, it's taken me time to realise that I had that because for ages I was just, as I said, I was trying to run away from it. I was trying to get out of bounds. I was trying to get away from it. I thought that there was nothing, nothing there for me as a creative person because I couldn't see it instantly on the surface when actually it is one of the most creative places I've ever been and I feel really lucky and fortunate and, and proud actually to have grown up, grown up there and around that that community that that did foster creativity not in the not in the same way that we would say in the creative industries but it was undeniable there was a creativity that ran through them um, and i'm sort of from that stock really i've always said i always i say it quite a lot these days but i think that every human is creative just by our very nature and i think that i would echo the same thing i'm from keithley originally and same thing you know it keeps gets run down if you hear it on the news it's either about racism or it's about something equally bad you know and it's very much a minority but for the same thing it's got that industrial heritage it's a mill town and you i grew up coming across so many eccentrics that again it's a hindsight thing you don't understand why i'm drawn to these people and why i wanted to turn these people into larger than life characters but it's there and um i do find that fascinating you look at hockney going back to bradford in his later years and i think ultimately you see it and you, and you want to go back and explore it. I think that's really interesting. Yeah, it's just, um, well, you, you know, you said it earlier. It's like all kids draw, all kids. They can't wait to mark make. They can't wait to make things. It's not something we teach them. It's there. It's inherent in everybody. And I think the only difference is we, we, we make a choice at some point, almost in a kind of, it's not as linear as this, obviously, but for argument's sake, you know, almost like a light switch moment where we turn it on or we turn it off. Yeah. Um, and we choose it as a path and we choose to sort of, you know, like, like an athlete would choose to exercise their muscles and make their muscles stronger and whatever else we choose to, to make that muscle stronger. Uh, and we go into creative careers or whatever else, or we just don't, we go into something else and pretend that, Oh, I'm not creative, you know, whatever. But I think everybody is. Um, and again, Keithley as well. Yeah. Annual, uh, there's an illustrator who lives in Keithley called Alan Hardman. Um, he that. is a proper left-wing, you know, militant fucker. He's great. He's like Ralph Steadman kind of, you know, stuff. And I found him when I was doing a book on the miners' strike, and he used to do all of the illustrations for the, the militant newspaper, which then got into something else, and he used to do all the art direction and, did, and layouts and whatever else. His background was in printing. 
And I, used to, I saw the work. I didn't know the person. I found all this work. And I thought, who's this amazing? Who's this guy? We've got to get this, some of this in the book, you know. And then I found out he was just, he's lived all his life in Keithley and he just, his upstairs little spare room, it just was his studio. So I went to see him, him and my dad, and, you know, he was amazing, amazing stuff. I'll have to dig it out and send that you. That sounds like an interview waiting to happen. I didn't know, I kind of feel quite embarrassed I didn't know about him. He's brilliant. Yeah, brilliant. Yeah. He's one of those people, he sort of, he, he's, his politics came before his art. He saw that his art as a, as a sort of a weapon, really. Yeah. Um, and it was the way he articulated himself in order to deal with these complex political issues. And it just so happened he had an outlet in the, in the form of a newspaper, but he didn't, he didn't do anything for anything else. Do you know what I mean? He, that yeah, was yeah. his profession. Politics was his profession. So he never sought the limelight, but he, he's a really great person, really great. Yeah, which is, I mean, I guess that's, that's very much kind of what I wanted to angle this chat about because, I mean, I was quite blown away by your Miner Strike book. The, uh, oh, in memory of work i think it's fantastic and it was it was a turning point just personally you know i'd gone followed the path drawn all my life stumbled from one discipline to another not really knowing what was what and was quite fortunate in terms of mentors and good tutors who saw the character and the fact i was drawing a lot and so ultimately ended up on an illustration degree but i'll admit it we took well into my third year before i felt truly inspired and the turning point for me was graphic activism because I, I, you know, it was like, okay, I've got the world to choose from for my dissertation. Don't really want to write. Um, so I chose to study like Ken Garland and First Things First Manifesto and then found all these people through that work that just, it just lit something up. It was like, okay, there's something to channel the mischievous child now, the, you know, the antagonist drawing kids in class because that was the only way I could get attention. So it was like, that was a real thing for me. So I've always been drawn back to it and always tried to give it as much of my time as I can to things that I just either find interesting and make me feel magic or can make a, you know, a positive difference. So, and I just felt at the minute there is this sentiment and understandably so because of everything going on in the world, you know, what's the effing point? That's what I'm going to call this, this kind of two part episode. And I think there's always a point, but I, to I totally get it when you wake up and you've seen all the shit on the news and you feel rubbish and but I think there is a point, and I don't think it has to be smashed mouth, which is why I really appreciate your own work, because it's a, it's, it comes from a pure place. So I guess, I mean, let's just if you could give us just a little insight to the Miner Strike book, because I think it's amazing. Yeah, I mean, that, that book, it's, it's a, you know, it's a, it's a kind of a, a almost more, it's a life story than anything else. It's not, it wasn't a sort, it wasn't a plan, it wasn't a sort of, um, a strategic choice to sort of do a book on this it was it was more a kind of a responsibility I really felt like it was um I'd grown up I was I, I'm what they call a strike burn in Barnsley a strike baby for yeah. you know people who don't use the word burn like fucking ye old English but um because that was how I was conceived and then born during the strike um so I I didn't I wasn't there for it so I can't provide testimony for that but I, I can provide testimony of growing up in a town that's had its industry and it's, and it's sort of its jobs removed from it and what that, what that does a kind on a, on a really kind of industrial vandalism uh, and barbaric manner, the way, what that does to a town is I grew up in that, in that wake. And a lot of my feelings are sort of still raw. And I guess, again, I think all children, when they're growing up, they sort of feel like their world is what it must be the same for every other every other kid. They don't really have the kind of awareness and the sort of bigger picture view of 
maybe my experiences is different to someone else's. You sort of just grow up in your own experience. So I thought everyone else in, on the entire planet had coal not door stickers in the garage and posters up on inside the doors and stuff like that. Uh, and I thought everyone in the world threw the slippers at the telly when Margaret Thatcher was on. And, you know, so things like that, I just accepted it for what it was. And it was only later as I grew up, I understand the context of that and realised that what all that meant in my experiences. And the 30th anniversary was coming up and I was talking to a friend of mine in Barnsley who runs a gallery, a guy called David Sinclair, really nice, really great, creative bloke. And I was just sort of chatting away with him. I go and see him whenever I'm in Barnsley, I drop into his little uh, office and he was like, oh yeah, we're doing this, we're doing that, we're doing something for the 30th anniversary of the strike, blah, blah, blah. And I said, oh, what are you doing for that? You know, thinking I might try and nip in and do some stuff. But it got me thinking and it really sparked it off. And I just thought, do you know what? I've never ever in all of, and, you know, and I'm, I'd like to consider myself a pretty well-read sort of person when it comes to my own profession. I, I, I really tried to consume as much as I could in terms of books and subject matter and designers and, and know my history of my profession. And I've never, ever seen anything where anyone has talked about all them, all those stickers, all those posters, all those things that I'd grown up with. And it was a, that, that was the point where I thought, this needs to be addressed. And the more I looked into it, the angrier I got because it had just been willfully ignored. Um, and I, what I saw as a creative execution of someone's struggle and someone's cares and concerns born out through protest, born out through this industrial dispute, was worthy of of recognition as, as as graphic protest as graphic agitation and that was the whole point to the book really and i guess the other layers that come into it were all afterthought you know the fact that i had some validity that i came from that community the fact that my dad was arrested at orgreave uh, and was you know my, my entire family was essentially victimized by the police and faced police brutality because of my dad being arrested at orgreave and the fact that it decimated pretty much my my town's community all of those things sort of fed into it and then my lens as a designer and and sort of trying to get people to reappraise what they think creativity is culminated in that book um and i'm incredibly proud that it's an incredibly biased book because that you know everybody the, you know the history is written by the victors kind of sentiment that the, like i said there's a it's, it's a it's a choice why none of that stuff has ever been seen before that was a choice. People chose not to, they chose to ignore it. They chose not to showcase it. They cho chose not to say there was some really amazing stuff that came out of this struggle. Uh, and it felt to me that it was about time that was, that was changed really. Uh, and it was all wrapped up in a really kind of sort of seminal moment for me as well. It was, it was a time where I'd left agencies. I got fed up with all that kind of stuff. I wanted to do my own thing. I had my own ideas about what I thought was good and what I thought was good design and what I thought was creative. And I wanted my work to have much more meaning than it was doing in the commercial kind of sector. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but it just wasn't where I felt fulfilled. And I wanted to sort of really explore those gaps where you can work in a commercial sector, which, which, the creative industries ultimately are, but still every, you know, inject some meaningful debate or challenge things or change things or just address concerns and imbalances and injustices through your work. It felt like that was, that was what I wanted to explore. And the book was a kind of culmination of all of those things in a kind of perfect storm at the time uh, by chance, but it, that's how it manifested really. 
And I think, to me, I think one of the reasons it's so powerful is because it is your story and it's your family's story and it's that thing that's passed down through generations. Um, and that resonates, that connects with people. And I think this is the crux of why I, I believe there is always a point to this theme that does it doesn't matter how you know how nuanced or how niche your story is like you said the whole growing up thing wanting to get out of town it, it, feeling like you know i think everyone believes they're from a shithole to a degree and i think that that but those stories are what grab people when it is so heartfelt and it is so personal and it's a look at that i think that shows the power and it doesn't have to be i mean the minor strike itself it very much had to be up in faces protesting people power but it doesn't to make change, there are so many, there's a spectrum, isn't there, about how you yeah. can implement that change. It can be tiny, it can be really delicate. Yeah, I think I think for me it's it's um it's a really complex thing. I mean, a, a lot of people think that a well, protest, uh, you know, is is the sort of end game, and it's not at all. Protest is a singular kind of event, it's one thing that happens. And it's actually the easiest thing that happens because you can feel because it is, because you're out on the street or whatever, it can feel like, you know, you've almost done your bit and you can go, you can return home off after doing your shift for humanity and carry on regardless. But it's much more different to like activism, which I think is a, is a sort of, it's a life choice. You could, you, you, you probably, I think it's, I think it was Angela Davis who said like, um, and I'm paraphrasing because I can't remember the, the full quote, but the, that idea and the sentiment behind it of being, you know, Activism is, is something that you will fight for and might not even see the resolution of in your entire lifetime, but it's, but you choose to dedicate yourself to that cause for change. And activism is much more diverse. It's not just about making something and then going out there to or going on a protest. It's actually lots of, of a, you know, a diverse array of ways to approach a problem uh, that you need to change. And I think graphic design and the creative arts can be a massive part of that. There are, there are obvious benefits of you know the way that people deal with these things and it manifests creatively but you know and that that is a that's almost like a cathartic kind of mechanism for what we do it can help people process emotions whether they write poetry or stories or draw something or you know make a placard whatever it's a really important mechanism for for humanity to be able to articulate those things but it goes bigger than that and deeper than that. And it can become almost symbolic or emblematic of a cause or a concern. And, and therefore it is important. I think that whole idea of, you know, what's the effing point, you know, the fact that you, you I, I will admit to myself, but in this pandemic feeling a little despondent with what I do as a discipline, because I'm sat there moving a bit of type around a page in some software when there's people quite literally dying on the front line from a virus. And you can feel a bit, a little bit despondent. But actually, I heard uh, Selena Godden, who we work with at Rough Trade. Uh, she's a poet and a performer, and she's got a she's got a really great uh, anthology called "Pessimism is for Lightweights." And I hear those words ringing in my ears. It's easy to whinge. It's easy to say everything's shit. It's easy to just go, "Oh, what's the point?" But actually, you know, that is that's for lightweights. That you know, to to be proper hardcore, to to actually want to change things, you've got to get through those things, and you've got to realize that what you do has meaning and what you do can be powerful and you can you're a tiny little bit in a bigger argument everybody is but that's the whole point the collective change will the collective will force the change not anything else so don't be a lightweight it's don't don't be 
that's the easy way out that to say ah oh, this doesn't matter it does yeah. matter and you can do your work and make it matter more yeah and pick something manageable i think as well i think you know that, i mean how did you feel in the actual creation of that project as i mean i know it's, it's very close to home and for obvious for those reasons but in the creation and seeing that coming together that must have filled you with wonder it, it, it filled me with dread i have to be honest um <laughs> i just felt a responsibility to yeah. my to my community I went through all, I went through the, not the, not the full spectrum of emotion, you know, by any chance, but there was a lot of insecurity that crept in. I used to work on it quite late at night and around other projects because obviously I had rent to pay and responsibilities, but, um, the, you know, it's those times when it creeps in like, oh, why am I, nobody cares about this. If they did, there'd already be a book on it and whatever else. And, and those kinds of things used to creep in, but you persevere because again, you come back to those, those ideas and those thoughts where you think no no this is a story worth telling and I want to tell this story and it's about time this story was told and again you sort of get over your own insecurities or you have to you have to get around that but I just felt like I was trying I was trying to represent a community and that felt like a weight and because I wasn't there like literally wasn't there I wasn't even born mm. I felt a bit of a weight from that thinking you know it can do I have the validity to say and actually I just thought no I'm I'm just I'm not a mouthpiece. I'm not using other, you know, other people as a mouthpiece. I'm actually telling their story and using my kind of, I'm putting their story in a different context mm. to actually hopefully raise that issue again and say, look, there's a lot of stuff that's not been solved here. There's a lot of, th there's a lot of injustice that's gone on. There's a lot of things that need to be sorted out. Let's get this back up in the, you know, in people's minds again. Um, and if it might be a different audience, it might be a younger audience, but that's important particularly for the minor strikes, you know, we're talking 30, 30, nearly 40 years on now, but there's it's still, there's still things that need to be, you know, addressed. Mm. And I think my kind of book was great at giving that another bit of wind in its sail because it introduced it to a, an audience that, did, that didn't know anything about it. You know, mm -hmm. culturally that kind of audience, they might've known about it, but they didn't know some of the work and it gave that another lift. Um, and I think that that was my kind of importance, really, lending the, the All Grief, Truth and Justice campaign uh, a bit more sort of energy that came from the younger side of things to just sort of help keep that story going and keep it in the sort of news, as it were. At, at a time now when, you know, we're, we are seeing a lot of reflections of, the, of that era, I think um, with the window actually on the other episode, she said, having someone who'd grown up in Wolverhampton in the 80s, she was her parents were the first generation of people to move from India to, to the Midlands. And she pointed out a lot of reflections of what was going on culturally then, you know. Um, and I think that can have a wider resonance of that a book like that, what you created there, could, you know, that, that could speak in an indirect way for what a lot of people are going to be going through very, very soon or are going through right now. Exactly. I mean, I, the, I do a lot of this kind of work, I guess. The Miner's book was a was a, almost a start. It felt to me like it was a culmination and, an, and a, not an end, but it felt like I'd reached a point where I thought, right, I've got everything in one place now. My point of view is in that. And actually, stupidly, I thought that that, that was it, that'll do. And it wasn't at all, it was the start. And I've, I've, I'd only just sort of creaked that door open a little bit. And I've been doing some work recently. I'm editing a magazine at the moment. Uh, for the modernist and on the theme of justice and I've been pull, you know justice for me is is quite a, a really interesting topic but I've been pulling in all these different stories from all these different times and people and communities and backgrounds and whatever else 
to try and give a richer picture. And I think the, th the, the, the great thing that, that the Miners book taught me and the other work I've done and, and doing this magazine sort of recently and all the events that we've been facing at the moment with COVID-19 and what have you, it's sort of, it's, it's, it's yet again doubly underlined the idea that people who are oppressed or people that, that face struggle identify with other people's struggles and oppressions. And that sense of solidarity really does connect people for even over decades and over distance, it connects people and people can see this, themselves in the struggle of others. And therefore that gives you empathy and you go, do you know what? They might help my fight if I help their fight. And that's again, that collective sort of snowball effect that can happen. And you've got, but you've got to be active. You can't be passive with those things. You can't, you can't sit in your couch and sort of say, yes, Black Lives Matter, but not go out and support those communities. Mm -hmm. You can't do that. That's not enough. You have to take a good hard look at yourself and think about how you've contributed to that oppression and also how you can change your behavior, your, your systems, your structures to sort of help them. And, and that is good for you. You know, mm -hmm. it's all of that kind of collective solidarity that, that needs to happen. And, and it's just a sort of, I, I just feel like you have to be involved in those discussions. You have to challenge, you know, power and you have to be challenged yourself and you have, that's for the better of everybody. Mm. I don't I'm just rattling now, mate. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no, you, you're completely right. And I think this is part of the issue. I, I kind of think of it as almost this, at the minute, there's a lot of B-movie monsters coming over the horizon and it feels insurmountable, a lot of these things, whether it's climate change. You know, the fact that Brexit's been put in the rearview mirror is kind of scary, isn't it, really? I mean, yeah. um, but, but that's what's going on at the minute. And if you try and tackle that alone as one person, you know, stamped on, simple. Um, but, you know, look at how any of them monsters get brought down. Maybe it's a really bad analogy. I don't just get that on where... No, but, no, you're right, you're right, though. But that, that's it. That's what I meant, really. It's like when, yeah. when I've been pulling these things together and doing the work I'm doing, you see how other people have overcome struggle or how people have attacked struggle. And you can you, those resonate now. And you see things going on and you think, well they did that in the 17th century or they did that in the eighties or whatever. And there's a lot of things that are similar then that are now. So maybe if we look at that, we can learn from it and we can evolve it and we can attack it. Mm -hmm. And that for me is, 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 is why these things are important and why we all need to know our history a lot better than we currently do and why we need to know how changes came around. You know, there's people that don't even know probably a lot of the time that you know the reason we have weekends is because of unions you know trade unions absolutely fighting for the workers rights mm -hmm. and it's just something we take for granted but you can't forget those things because they're important and they evolve and they are still relevant now particularly you know these issues are sort of universal that happen and you know things like that you know week weekends as i'm talking about weekends for some reason best known to my subconscious but it's nearly Friday, you know. Um, <laughs> you know, all that just man those those issues just manifest in different times. So, you know, working seven days and getting absolutely obliterated and 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 literally dying in your factory way back when is 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 an equatable thing to having a zero hours contract and dying in your home because you can't have work and you can't put food on the table. And that's what unions are for to help collectively through these things. So, the trade union movement, for example, can is one tiny little thing that one individual that you're right might get might drown in all this noise and all this kind of anxiety and and kind of concern and thinking that you're useless and pointless no you're not you have a, you have a voice you have the power you know this is a, a democracy although sometimes you don't feel like it you can vote 
and you can you can give you know a couple of quid a month to a union and they that swell of people can fight for each other yeah. so although again pessimism is for lightweights it's easy to sort of go oh, i can't do all i'm just here on my own no you fucking can yeah. and you fucking should so, i think you hit again you, you, the time scale thing is really interesting there was a, there was a, a number of things that I find this sometimes that things kind of, it's almost like not to get all mystic or anything, but there's a number of things that seem to, I felt really down for a while about more about the environment than anything else. And it almost felt like these personal projects that I was working on in my own time, exactly what you've said there, they felt a little bit redundant, a little bit like, why am I doing this when there's, you know, there's forest fires, there's this, that, and the other. And it was randomly enough. It was mad. First it was, it was actually your talk, your, um, is it nicer Tuesdays? The, the They Live one. Yes. So it was the They, yeah, live, was, the, the, the they live book. And then it was my, my dad's always been really, just really interested in history. And, and he was reading a Charles Dickens uh, biography. And it was him that told me that Dickens' stories and his work in there was really pivotal in workers' rights. And what you mentioned there about seven days weeks, I believe he played quite a significant part in telling that story through a really interesting filter. And it was what you mentioned in that talk about these... Um, less intimidating filters and the ability to come together and talk about something out of interest as opposed to, you know, something more full frontal. And I just found that fascinating. And that, that, that then kind of got me off my ass quite quickly and made me think, no, no, keep writing, keep doing these subversive projects because you don't know who you inspire. You don't know who you connect yeah. with these projects. That's the thing. It's like, I think when, when you're, when you're authoring or, or kind of, you know, when you are responsible for your output in a kind of direct sense, you can sometimes, again, I think all creative people are like this just because we, we seem to be much more, I don't know, sensitive, I guess, to certain things or we're a bit more aware of where our work sits because you're exposing your sort of your ideas and your beliefs more than you might do if you work for a corporation. You can hide behind that company kind of thing. So you, all, you, you can feel a little bit exposed, but those insecurities, when they creep in, they, they, tap, they, they fool you into thinking that your projects are quite linear that you think, oh, I'm doing this book on the miners' strike. Your insecurity says to you, no one gives a shit. It's just you. No one else is going to care about it. Um, when actually, what you intend for the book, you have no idea. You have no idea what that what that thing is going to do once it's released to people. You don't know who's going to see it. You might, you know, you don't know if someone's going to be inspired by it and take somewhere else. You, you know, take it somewhere else. You don't know what people are going to see in it, how it's going to react in them. You don't know what it's going to stir. You can't have any responsibility for that. It's kind of, I mean, within reason, obviously, but um, I'm not saying it going inside here, of course, but it's like that is almost like one of the wonders of putting your work out in the world because you, you don't really know. And I think it's lovely, particularly with books, when they find their own audience mm. and they resonate with other people. But your work, your creative output is almost like a filter for people to see other things within it. And you know, they might they might see it as a mirror and see something in themselves, or they might see through it to another point in time and, and examine other structures or other kind of incidents in their own experiences. That and it and it can do all these different things. It's not just an A to B thing. It's not just a linear thing. Like I'm doing this because I want to do that. It actually you have no control over that, and that's a can be a really powerful thing. That's why I I love They Live the film because. You can watch it and it can be 90 minutes of alien invasion bullshit B-movie. Or you can get really kind of into it, into the politics, into how we treat the homeless, how we treat the vulnerable in our society, how completely overwhelmed we are with consumerism and media 
and and gender issues and race issues and you can get so much from the, that 90 minutes that makes you that provokes you that challenges you that makes you think fuck and it can do both things and there's no right or wrong everybody's viewing of that film will be different and that's again the power of it that's the beauty of it everybody's viewing of a poster will be different everyone's reading of a book will be different yeah but you've got you've got to have that object you've got to have that catalyst otherwise you're not doing your job if it doesn't provoke something in people what's the point mm-hmm. well it does it stirs and, it, and it's it's at the core of all these great projects is um fascination and exploration and open-endedness and leaving the ownership for the viewer which is all at the core of art and what makes it you know magical and i think it's um i think i can get lost sometimes you know we feel that we do feel almost that like if we can't see the entire picture you know then it feels kind of crazy and, and just there in the ether but it's really uh like you say that's that's for me that's been the biggest thrill particularly of doing more and more writing that's that's you know these doors open it's bizarre i just yeah. i ended up getting commissioned by guardian to do this they basically gave me an open book and said you know it's guardian city illustrated city series and they said um you know wherever you want your take on it you know come back to us there's a lovely graphic novel which i got to write and illustrate and i didn't know what i was going to do so i just I, I went out walked around manchester without trying to think too much and i just couldn't get away from the homeless issue so I just, I started to write just, you know, about the way that that made me feel and about those things. And to see that, get that, you know, go out there and get an audience through The Guardian was, again, it just went back to that's, okay, that's why I write, that's why I put it out, just in, yeah. in, out there for people to connect with and, you know, you just don't know. And I think those projects are really, really vital for, particularly for designers or, you know, creative, creative people. I'm speaking on as a designer, as I, I would class myself as a designer, but, um, self-initiating work i mean people think that they have to have all these kinds of boxes ticked about what they are but and you know like you said you know you feel like you've got to figure everything out before you do it and 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 know the whole story and all that but actually all you really need to do is be a point of entry into something else for some people that's Mm -hmm. all you need like if it's just a little trigger or if it's just a little prod or a little kind of provocation you've kind of done what you need to do if you've just made someone think a little bit differently or inspired somebody to do something different in themselves or, or just even just chuck a little bit of money towards something that they, they hadn't before or worked in support of something, mm-hmm. you've kind of done what you need to do. The rest of it is your own standard that you set. Yeah. And you shouldn't ever feel that you have to sort of master these things, you know, whatever else. It's just if you believe in something enough and if you are prepared to sort of put your opinion on the line and, and, and create that thing, then it's not a question of who's going to let you, it's who's going to stop you, you know, yeah. just do it and see yeah. what happens. Completely. And then, you know, even the, the ripples are really interesting because from your talk, then I learned about Jenny Holzer and um, Barbara Kruger and, you know, the gorilla girls. And to my shame, I, I, was, I was unaware. And then all the, you know, it's like back to the whole dissertation thing and Ken Garland being my entry point for all these other amazing activists, same thing happening again, all this time down the road and a whole new generation then, you know, inspired by their live, which is still happening organically. Yeah. And, you know, yeah. Whether, it's, when it happens. whether it's type nerds, into your book for the typography or whether it's just you know production design there's it's it's ownership and people plugging in what works for them you know yeah and i've always i i tried to sort of i overthought that those because it's a series of books and they lives the first um and I, i i sort of overthought that for years i was i was i was insecure about the projects i just thought people are just gonna think i'm a john carpenter nerd and you know whatever um 
and I was really insecure about it. But my, my hope was a really simple kind of cycle. I wanted people to find different points of entry and then sort of go into the washing machine cycle of, of, of inspiration with it. So they might, you know, they might be massive They Live fans and they might see the book and just go, oh, book on They Live, brilliant. And then, like yourself, come away with, oh, I'd, I'd never seen Johnny Holzer before or I'd never read Roger Luckhurst or whatever, and then come out and ex- start exploring other, other areas. Or equally, they might come in as a big street art, street art or Shepherd Fairy kind of fan and just go, what the fuck's this film? And yeah. then watch the film, and then they, uh, they go almost like the other, the opposite direction. But I want it to to have all these multiple points of entry, so that people just by using that one film, you know, or a film, because obviously there's a series that people will start to find all the other connections and all the other contexts in which that film exists, and it just explodes a kind of inspiration in people. Mm-hmm. Um, that's what I want for the books. That's my grand, you know, my grand plan for those books is to just celebrate visual culture. Actually, it's not, you know, the film's just a sort of a ruse to get yeah. people interested. Yeah. But like you say, it could be tight nerds. It could be old, but yeah. if they find one thing in the book that they didn't know of before, and then they're interested in, I've, yeah, I see that as a massive success. Yeah. Completely. I mean, I'm a, I'm a, like an embarrassingly nerd, wrestling nerd fan. I'm, I'm terrible. I'm worse than I ever was. Oh, I love wrestling, mate. I've got a little uh, action figure upstairs of Bret Hart on my... Uh, yeah, I've had it since I was... Well, I've had it as long as I can remember. It's one of the yeah. really, really old ones that he, he, just his arms move, you know? Yeah, yeah. No, I've got Proper early 90s. I've got that upstairs. Uh, I love <laughs> wrestling. I remember I my mum to see the British Bulldog. Uh, yeah. He was in. He was. It was one of those. It must have been like he was on the end of his career or whatever. But he, he was in uh, Barnsley and he was wrestling all these, you know, random people. Yeah, yeah. And I had photo taken with him afterwards. <laughs> massive, muscly arm around my neck, you know. I love that. <laughs> one of the windows stories that she told me. She, um, her dad had an electrical shop in Wolverhampton and used to do like Bollywood VHS. And they used to do a little racket pirate ones back in the day. And she said, her and her sister's part-time job was copying all the films and then guessing at the certification and putting, putting <laughs> dodgy stickers on it. And she said they used to come back from people and they just had little snatches of wrestling halfway through where they'd taped over it or something. It just really made me laugh that. <laughs> oh, that. So, yeah. so do you got any more plans for the epiphanies, uh, epiphany editions? Yes, yes. So... I mean, the whole, the whole, the whole idea with it is is to create books that don't exist. Mm. So um, the idea, the, the the reason it's called the Epiphany Editions is that I actually started to notice that in in a particular genre filmmaking of whether the science fiction or horror or whatever, that there used to be the, the, sometimes there's this 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 sort of super prop which is a book. And it's, it's like a catalyst in a story and the whole film almost flips or changes or a character arc is pivot, you know, pivots on these, these moments that they have interactions with these props. Mm. So when they live, you know, that, that whole magazine that the book, you know, the book is based on is, is based on when he picks up the magazine and realizes what's going on. And it's the best scene in the entire film. It's pretty much revolving around that newsstand and the, you know, I started to notice that this was actually a really important thing, and I thought there's that's a vehicle to talk about the culture that 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 led up to that film being made, and the society and the politics and everything, the film itself, and then the impact that that film has had. 
And I thought if I can wrap that up in something that people will want to keep as an almost replica prop, that that's what it is. So they live was the first one by chance. It just happened to sort of the, the, the wheels on that one moved really quick. Uh, John Carpenter wrote the foreword and that was kind of like, that was like the green light. As soon as he was involved, everybody was like, yeah, I'll do it. Yeah, I'll do it. Um, the other ones have been a little bit slow for, for various reasons, uh, all of them different, but, the next one we're, we're sort of galvanising at the moment is The Shining. Um, when the, the moment in The Shining, of course, is Jack's doing his whole thing on one side, Danny's doing his whole thing on the other, and in the middle is the mum trying to hold the family unit together. And it's not until she wanders into that great hall and finds his manuscript that she actually, you know, confirms her fears. Oh, shit, yeah, he is. He's batshit crazy, you know. Mm. And flicking through those pages, so the the the, the book will be a, a sort of a loose leaf manuscript replica of that. Okay. And we've got yeah some really really interesting people that are going to be involved in that. We're hoping to get that out by the end of the year. Uh, and it's just yeah been a massive fight. But there's also other ones as well, like Beetlejuice. Uh, we are working on <laughs> handbook for the recently deceased in that, uh, which again is is is. So it's almost like a little character itself. It's all the way through the book. They all refer to it. Uh, and it's it's just a lovely little quirky character within that. And I love that. And there's so much when you start to, again, like they live, so, when you start to unpick or, or, or watch them and analyse them a little bit and just ask little questions, like why is that there? And, you know, you know all these little things, you start to, you start to get into a whole new world. It's, it's, a, it's a really interesting project. It really, really is. Like The Shining, for example, you know, just looking at, you know, mental health, looking at, you know, issues of isolation, which has been really hard, writing a book about isolation whilst you're in isolation. Um, you know, there's, there's all these kind of, of subtexts. And the fact, even the fact alone that The Shining exists is almost this weird work of art that, that, more than many other films I've, I've ever known is a vehicle for people to make their own mind up about what's going on. So many people have concluded it in different ways. Now for a, for a, a pretty massive director like Stanley Kubrick to make an open-ended work of art like that for me is, 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 is you could write a whole book just on that. Mm. Um, so that's a really fascinating kind of, it's almost like a vessel that you pour in your own ideas and you get, you make that film about whatever you want it to be about because there's that much littered around it. So that's been really interesting. And just some of the themes in Beetlejuice as well that are just really, really interesting about sort of seances and, and how we communicate and treat our dead. And, and actually, you know, the whole idea that we think death's the end. And if it's not the end, it's somehow tied up in this beautiful cloud-like existence where we, we're all young and beautiful and, and happy when actually what if death is like being a civil servant you know that you know the idea of fucking hell you wish you were still alive because this is not this is worse you know <laughs> yeah you're just tied up in all this bureaucracy and there's all these rules and there's all these things happening that you have no control over and it's just that for me was such an interesting kind of view of what it could be and it's a real challenge you know, the idea that you forget all these things, like they're haunting people and they're trying to scare them out of the house. And it's actually a really disturbing view, all tied up in interior design. You know, it's, it's really, really bizarre. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, the fact that Harry Belafonte's music, you know, it's, you know, it's, it's a horror film with Calypso music. 
Yeah. It's kind of, it shouldn't work, but it does. It's, a, yeah. it's genius. I love that film. I watched it again recently, first time in a while. Yeah. But there's loads of others. There's like Donnie Darko, who we're oh, we've been speaking to Richard Kelly about. And he's a really, really interesting guy, the director for that. Um, and really, like, he, he, he does operate much more like an artist, even though he, his, his films are kind of cult and commercial and he operates within this kind of studio system. He's actually really a really, really interesting bloke, but mm. I don't want to go too much in on that because, uh, yeah, there's a lot going on. But there's, yeah, there's endless ones. Back to the Future's got them in. You know, Rosemary's Baby's got one in. It's, it's, you could keep going and going and going. I'd love to see you try and tackle uh, There and Back Again, A Hobbit's Tale by Bilbo Baggins. Oh, Christ. <laughs> I'm not big on Lord of the Rings, man. I'll have to be honest. Imagine I'm that, not... though, the type nerdy in that, Elven. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, I, I think it's a wonderful project. down now, isn't it? <laughs> I think it's a wonderful project, though. It's um, thank you, mate. It's just uh, that, but that again, it goes back to that, um, you know, sense of wonder, doesn't it? And exploration, and, and working with what activates you, your passions. That you know, I always say to people, don't look. I had a friend who started drawing recently, and he didn't really. He did it a lot as a kid. Just started to do it again recently. Started to enjoy it, and he was he was asking me how do you know what to draw? And it's a very valid question because we, you know, people disconnect. And I think it goes back to what you were saying about all kids draw, and you reach a point, and then you either go one way or the other. And I think a lot of that is down to like the, it's the perception of it all. And people, at a certain point, they start looking far away from home and start ignoring all their passions, and suddenly filing them away as something I should do in the weekends and evenings, but not something that I can have as a linchpin at the core of what I do as a yeah. practice. I think for me, it's always, it's about confidence and, and kind of security in your own belief systems and your own principles and also just your own interests mm. that, you know, I, we used to, I used to work with a, a chap called Ant, Anthony Smith. And he, I remember if you he ever heard anybody say a guilty pleasure, it used to be about like music, you know, someone had put a track on and I don't know if it was somewhat particularly cheesy or something, loads of people start wading in like, Oh, you put this crap on for is it a guilty pleasure, you know, whatever. And he used to say, there's no such thing as a guilty pleasure. You know, if you, if you enjoy something and you take something from it, then why should you feel guilty about it? Mm-hmm. And I always really liked that. I always really liked that it defended things. Even if he hated the music, you know, it, it defend people for it. And I always thought that was really generous and really great way to look at things. And I think people don't necessarily have that confidence in their own creativity. As I said before, it's like you're, you're exposing parts of yourself and that can, it puts you in a really vulnerable position. And if like me, and this is something I really try and work hard at, particularly when I teach and when I go to sort of GCSE or A-level kind of students and talk to them about like being creative, it's, um, you know, that idea that your confidence, even before you even know there's a profession around, is is chipped away at. Because if you, if like me, if you told your mum and dad, oh, I want to be a graphic designer, they'd be like, what? What trade's that? Get a proper job, you know? That, 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 that's, but that's their insecurity. They don't know anything about that kind of industry. And they're just looking out. They want you to be able to earn enough money to have your own life, to sort of have a family, all these other things. So they, they're trying to protect you, really. But what they don't see... I mean, my mum wasn't that. She was really supportive. She did, that, she did have that, that... I think to this day, she's no fucking idea what I do for a living. But as long as I'm happy, she's all right. Yeah. So, but a lot of parents, they, they're just trying to be protective of the children. And if, and if they're not up to, up to, you know, they don't know what the profession is or the fact that it can give you a really, really good wage, um, they get scared of it. And so they, they don't realize they're doing it, but they're chipping away at someone's confidence there and they're chipping away at someone's 
kind of security in themselves to want to go and create for a living. And that is something I'm always trying to really protect or shelter kind of, not to sound patronizing, but you know, kids, kids for them is to sort of say, no, there is a, there is an industry out there. You can draw for a living. You mm-hmm. can design for a living. You can think and create and be imaginative for a living. All that stuff that all kids enjoy, like Disney and whatever else, as you know, as you know, mainstream commercial and wherever they are, that's just pe- that's people who love doing what they do, making things to to try and inspire other people to do that. And we've got to really get in there at that that kind of ground level that early, so that people do feel that creativity is a valid profession. It's a valid, you know. A sort of a lifestyle it's a it's a valid way to to live your life and can you can still have all the other things that other people that might not want to do it but earn it and then to you know that whole proper job thing mm. we can get rid of that we've got to protect people from that mentality really um because that's how we're going to get you know that's that's how we're going to get a more diverse industry by supporting younger people and supporting families that might not come from you know middle class backgrounds and you know and minority backgrounds to say no this is a legitimate you know profession and concern they can do it here's some examples here's a way in pay people fairly so everyone's got the equal opportunity and then we then we're getting somewhere mm-hmm. so it's important for me that you know when you're saying what do you draw about that people feel valid in themselves to know you know like me with those i said i felt really insecure about the film things i thought well I'm not qualified to talk about films, but I have an opinion on them. Yeah. Um, and it's, it, it's just, it's a kind of, it's a kind of confidence. I've had the privilege of a, of a fortunate career to sort of, you know, be in a position now where I can, I can, I can do that. So I choose to talk about things like proper job syndrome, because I feel I don't want to, I want to leave the industry better than I, when I was in it. And I think part of that is to make people feel valid in themselves and, know that they can contribute whatever it is they want because again back to the whole project thing that might inspire someone else to do something else and say well if they can do that about film if he can do that about film and if he can write and draw pictures at undertaker why can't i do this about whatever it is yeah and then i would say yeah why not why can't you go for it again like you know what's it's not who's going to stop you yeah, and it's far more in tune with the very nature of art, isn't it, and creating than, like we said, planning something right through and, and following a systematic, you know, systematic path. Because I mean, that's corporate culture, isn't it? Yeah, <laughs> you know. I mean, again, I mean, uh, however, however people get in, fine, as long as they, for me, uh, you know, where we are right now, anyway, you know, like, just don't close the gate behind you. That's my biggest, biggest, or oh, it boils my piss that I hate it. Yeah. When some people make it, I guess, you know, in inverted commas, they make it and then they don't meaningfully share how they got into the industry or they don't give meaningful kind of, they don't, you know, they don't exchange with generations behind them. That for me is, is, is really, really bad form. You should, you should tell people how you, how you got where you are and what you worked at and whatever else so that they're given the opportunity as well. Yeah. Um, it's really unfair if you don't, I think, and really selfish. And I agree. I, I, wouldn't, I don't know about you, but I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing if it weren't for a string of wonderful mentors who stepped well out of their way to, to yeah. pass on a nugget of advice or to, to show me something or whatever it might be. You know, there's my life's full of them, and therefore I always said that I'd try and do that for the for the next person. That's why I do this show. You know, it's like it's yeah. partly it's my way that 
you know, it's something that I have to do when I, no matter if I'm busy and I've got a lot of commercial projects on by interviewing people, letting them tell their story, putting the spotlight on somebody else and just putting it out there. There's over 150 episodes now. You know, my dream is that one day there's going to be a thousand and I can just leave that archive for that next kid who doesn't really know what to draw or whatever it might be. Yeah. I was on about this the other day uh, with a friend of mine, another designer. We, we got on to, we were talking about awards and whatever else. Um, Cause I've just, I've done a little piece on creative review where they were asking me about awards like 40 years on for their anniversary issue. And I was, you know, wading in on that, but I've been, the, the a poster I did recently for key workers has been for, I don't know why I've just had quite a lot of emails about it from galleries and museums wanting to collect it and have it in the, in their archives and stuff. And for me, that is like, probably one of the best things that's ever happened to work. And when, when the V&A wanted the miners stuff in the collection, I thought, well, wow, a, you know, a lower or working class lad has got some work in a, in the middle, middle to high class, you know, world. Um, you know, that for me was a big, big moment and a big change. And actually if, if there's an archive where there's some work that people can go and look at years and years and years after I'm gone or whatever, that they can sort of learn something from or see a context of something or whatever, see what was going on at a period of the time. That for me is a, is a form of what I see as success, not some, you know, fucking lump of wood or whatever else, a bit yeah. of metal. Yeah. So, you know, it's again, but again, that comes down to like your own self, your own sense of self. It's like you, you should define success and achievement for yourself, not, Otherwise, you're just conforming to someone else's idea, definition of what success is and what failure is as well. You know, right. that's important. Yeah, so, success is only what, it's subjective. If you don't feel successful in what you set out to do or want to do while you get out of bed in the morning, then it's not success, is it? It might be success in mum's eyes who's, who's seeing, you know, your 60K salary, but it's not what it is. You know, true yeah. success is it's only, you know, it's very, very subjective. I sort of came to that the hard way, like working at agencies, uh, you know, I sort of had... You know, the person that achieves the goal is not the same person that set the goal. And I, I thought I was like living my dream being in this agency and I, I had a, a massive degree of autonomy in that agency. I could pretty much do whatever I wanted. Um, but I wasn't happy, you know. Yeah. And I used to think, I used to like bully myself, really. Like, why are you not happy? You've got everything you want. You're fucking, you know, a miserable bastard kind of thing. <laughs> But you can't ignore that feeling. You can't, that's why feelings are so powerful. The emotion of it, you can't ignore them because you can't control them. They don't go away. Yeah. Um, and it was that kind of moment where I thought, do you know what? I'm being told I'm a success here because I'm doing this and that and the other and we're winning this and that and the other, yeah. but I'm still not happy. It's actually, well, actually, is that a form of failure? Because it's not my definition of success that I'm hitting. It's yeah. someone else's. Mm-hmm. And there's a scene in The Sopranos where Tony's like hammering this guy to death. And he's, he just like, he says to him, you know, like everything you, you have, just remember that you have it because I've let you. And that's how I felt. <laughs> Great you know, analogy. Like, yeah. Fuck, you know, I'm, I'm that guy bleeding on the floor. Yeah. And actually, I want my own autonomy. I want, I want to tell myself what success is. And I want to, you know, redefine what failure is. And I'll be the judge of that. And no one else is going to tell me what that is for myself. No one else is going to tell me if I'm good or bad. I'm just going to do work that I think matters. Yeah. Again, that's a really privileged position to sort of be in and find yourself in. Not that I had shitloads of cash or all like that and I could just do whatever I wanted. I couldn't. But, it, but I'm a principled person and I left on a kind of crime of passion. 
I just thought, fuck this, I'm off. Yeah. I had no savings, no clients, nothing, but I just I couldn't deal with it anymore. You have to, um, be, you have to be true to yourself in that respect. So you you know, do, yeah, you do. And even that is still a, a kind of I'm not I'm not under any impressions. That's not still a sort of form of you know white man's privilege to be able to just fuck everything off and be all right, you know. Yeah. But you know, I want other people to to have have that to experience that to be able to sort of do what they want to do and you know have whatever they need to be able to do it i think everybody should have a fair crack at that mm. so but that comes from just sticking to your principles and understanding yourself well enough to sort of say i think this is good that's what i'm, I'm ambitious for and that's my idea of success and i'm not going to let anyone else tell me otherwise mm-hmm. and then fucking grafting for it couldn't have put it better and to come full circle Let's, you know, in terms of the ultimate success, I suppose. How did you that? How did your dad and the and the mining community feel about the book? Uh, they were overwhelmed. I, I, it was it was it was quite a moving kind of moment, really. I um, we had a couple of launches. We had one in uh, Manchester and we had one in London for the book. Uh, and the one in Manchester, you know, I got all the family over because it's you know it's only an hour down the road, Barnsley. Um, and I got and I invited everybody that had been involved in the book. So. From people like Alan, uh, the guy in Keithley, he came over with his wife and family, and we had a bit of a do for them. And and uh, people like Anne Scargill, who was a you know pretty much the co-founder of Women Against Pit Closures, a massive inspirational movement for me. That my even my mum was involved in that, but Anne was like the leader. And they, her and a, a, another woman called Betty Cook, who co-founded, they came over, and it was just all these people that I, that I respected and felt. Felt the pressure from, you know, felt, oh, shit, they're here. Um, <laughs> and I launched the book and I did a little speech and I went in, I went to get a drink and Anne Scargill was there and my mum was there and there was a lot of them sort of, they, they'd sort of been, you know, chatting away or Callan, as we say in Barnsley. <laughs> and Anne came over to me and she just put her arm on my head, like, you know, sort of grabbed my neck. And uh, she just said, I'm re- we're really, really proud of you. And you've done us proud here. And I, I just burst into tears. I just awesome. couldn't, couldn't believe it. It was a bit of relief. It was, the you know, all that culminated. But the fact that someone that important in that struggle and still doing that great work felt that I'd contributed to the, to the sort of the argument was, yeah, really moving. Um, and that was all I wanted for the book. It was just to represent my community. Um, not to do anything else. It had other, all those other, all of the stuff I talked about. Yeah, I wanted to do that and important, but primarily, I just wanted to represent my community in the way that I saw the, the truth. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, Anne and Betty and my mum and my dad and them, sort of, them sort of sharing the fact with me that they thought it had done that was overwhelming. Really, mm-hmm. uh, one of the yeah, nicest moments of my life, I guess. Mm. And, it, and it's why you know i guess it's why we do this those feelings and that kind of uh power you know to to please to pay homage to whatever we choose to do with these skills it's such a it's such an honor and, a, and you know and a powerful tool it really is it really is and i think i think we can forget that i think i think we can forget that as designers and creative people that work in a profession i think i think we forget that though we might not be the most important cog in that machine we are an important one and we have a real privilege and a real power to communicate to people and we have but with that you know we also have that 
sense of responsibility to do the right thing and to operate in a sustainable manner that befits, you know, our fellow citizens and also this planet and everything else. And I think we can forget that sometimes, but it's actually, we do, we do have a say we are at the table and you know, you, you have to define your principles and then work to them in order to have any form of change really. And to wrap so, it up, there's something that really, uh, really, I found really quite powerful in what you said when was a kitchen table creativity in, in you know, reference to a lot of the signs and things that came from the miners movement, that these were not designers, these were not qualified people, and yet they used them skills to, to get a message across, a, a vital message. And I, just yeah. think, I think it's something to take away that for someone who's starting out on their own path or doesn't quite feel like they're there yet, there's never a right time, is there? And, and when something's of a of urgency that you care about like that, then I think you get stuck in and there's a beauty in that and it can often work yeah. out for the, better, for the better. It's one of those things that it's like, it sounds like such a woolly kind of non-answer to something, but it's actually, in my experience, it's the only one I've ever found to be true is that it's, you will know when you need to create, you will know, you'll, you'll have the feeling and people that, that create those things, you know, that, that kitchen creative, creative kitchen table creativity that I love um, comes from people that have got to the point where they just, they need to get it out. They need to process it. And so they just grab whatever's to hand and make some marks and those marks have meaning and that's all we are as humans. We are the marks that we make and the, the impressions that we leave on people and the world and everybody does that and everybody can do that. And you've just got to make the choice really. And I think it's yeah, really amazing thing. Yeah. Well, that's, um, that's really been quite inspirational, Craig. And, uh, oh, yeah, thank you. no, I very much appreciate your time. And, uh, oh, thanks for having me. I'm really, really chuffed. It's great to, great to chat to you about it, mate. And, no, definitely, yeah. and I would have loved to have done this over a brew or a pint, you know, in in, in, oh, no, yeah. in that time. So we'll have to get a beer when, um, when you know, when we when there's a, when there's a good time. Absolutely, absolutely, mate, definitely, love that. Thank you so much to Craig Oldham for such an impassioned conversation. I mean, as far as these projects go, it's some of the most inspiring work I've seen in a long time, and it goes right there alongside Ken Garland, the personal hero in my book you know um art is wonderful art should be magical art should be full of wonder um and i think we often try to formulize formulize is that a word formulize it if it is a word the path the journey what this project's going to be what it's going to be from start to finish and sometimes we have to work like that because that's our personality but i find that if we don't set out just to play and to create and to see what happens and to see how we feel and where it might live in the world that we don't always hit up on these things that are true to us. So I want to know where you're from. Hit us up at Arrest or Mimics on the social. Get in touch via email, hello at bentallen.com. I'd love to know where you're from, what you're passionate about, what your nerdery thing is. Send us a link to some of your projects. I'm going to be doing this show on uh, personal passion projects and why they're truly important and how it's how we kind of make sense of who we are and our visual style and where we want to go and find out where we're going. You know, we don't always know where we're going to go. If the journey would be boring, wouldn't it, if we knew? Um... So hit us up. I want involvement on this one. Please do let us know how you feel. It's really important. Um, Craig was amazing, right? In Loving Memory of Work is a showcase to anybody about just what you can do with a personal passion project. Um, 
And I do think you guys are going to have your socks blown off by Dewinda Bansal, who's coming up next week on the show for part two of this What's the Effing Point special. And I hope that already we've, um, we've you know, really clarified and solidified and confirmed the fact that there has to be a point. There really is a point because the world is in a shit state and there is need for visual communication, for powerful visual communication in subtle ways, in direct ways. But I think like Craig hit upon, if we come together as individuals and collectives and use that fire and, and really, really push and, you know, maximise this visual communication skills, these music skills, this poetry, this writing, this reading, whatever it might be, whatever your thing, no matter how big or small, that we truly can change the world in incremental, small, manageable ways that do help to get us out of bed. So I hope this has helped, guys. Um, I'm sorry if it hasn't. I try to do this thing to uh to, to make some good uh, it's why i will time and time again come back to these episodes um cheers for listening like i mentioned at the top of the show i'm happy that i found the motivation now to um to get my book project finished that's going to be coming out in october i'm going to tell you more about it on the show coming up but it's called yamum yes your mother yama yamam however you say it wherever you're from your mum it's called yamum and other stories from the back streets of britain and like I said before, it's something that I'm passionate about. It's something that I find fascinating with the world. And for so many weeks and months, I felt like it was invalid, like it didn't have a place in the world because who would want to read this stuff? It's ridiculous. It's stupid. It's funny to me, but nobody else gives a shit. But what I'm finding from the feedback on the project, which is wonderful, is that people truly do care. And that doesn't stop with my projects. That really, really does go through all of your projects. If it's got soul, if it's truly creative, then I really, really think can make an impact, no matter the size. So I think I've said what I want to say. I will remember something as soon as I get off the air. But thank you so much for listening. Thank you to the supporters of the show once again. IllustrationX.com, fantastic illustration agency and animation agency representing so many talented artists. Go and check out the portfolios and the Association of Illustrators. TheAOI.com, brilliant, brilliant, vital bunch of people organization supporting the illustration industry cheers guys it's been a, it's been a personal favorite episode we've got dewinda bansal coming up next week out on the 23rd of july awesome awesome episode exploring her beautiful beautiful special and important work 